0: Welcome to our news analysis show, 16 Minutes. I'm Zoran, and since this show is all about teasing apart what's hype, what's real, and where we are in the long arc of innovation, today we're trying to get a quick pulse check with the experts on just where we are with the COVID vaccine rollout in the U.S. Our experts today are Dr. Bob Wachter, the chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. He has come to additional prominence during the pandemic as a regular public resource, providing daily updates and reports on Twitter throughout the crisis. He's also currently guest hosting the In the Bubble podcast. We also have Dr. Vinita Agarwala, a general partner at A16Z Bio, who's also a practicing clinician at Stanford Hospital. You can catch our ongoing coverage of all things vaccines at a16z.com vaccines. But in this episode, we cover where we really are with the vaccine rollout right now. Is it working or not, given all the buzz and mixed messages we've been hearing on social and in the media? We cover everything from distribution in practice, that is from the clinical on the ground perspective, to other dynamics, such as new strains. To demand for the vaccines, including vaccine hesitancy and not just anti-vaxxers, to the data, which is where we'll start. On Friday, the CDC reported that about 77 million people in the U.S. have currently received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine, with about 42 million who have been fully vaccinated. So how far along are we to herd immunity?
1: What's important about those numbers are uh, you probably have to add them to the number of people who have had natural infection to get a sense of the number of people that are either fully or partly immune right now, you're probably up to 130, 140 million people that are immune at this point, and therefore is probably half of the adult population of the United States is not susceptible to getting COVID at this point. That's not at herd immunity levels, but it's at a level that clearly creates a, a significant downward pressure on the curve.
0: So this whole vaccine rollout is happening at the same time as new strains of the virus are appearing and starting to circulate around the globe. The UK variant B one one seven is the most prevalent in the US. There are two others originating in South Africa and Brazil that so far are less prevalent. But how are the variants responding to the vaccines as this rollout continues?
2: Just today, actually, some nice data out in the New England Journal where they looked at patients in the pivotal trial for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, the RNA vaccine, and looked at those patients' blood two to four weeks after the second dose of the vaccine and asked, did those patients make antibodies that could then neutralize engineered versions of COVID-19, which have each of those three variants? And they all did. So all the patients did have levels of antibodies that were able to neutralize all three variant strains of COVID. Now, this isn't the same as preventing an infection or preventing severe disease. And we're starting to see hints of that data in the vaccine trial data as well. And lots more layers here. Neutralizing antibodies isn't the entirety of an immune response. There's a T-cell component and lots that we don't know, but that's still pretty reassuring data that suggests that the vaccines are going to have at least at a minimum partial efficacy against multiple variants of the spike protein. And so I think that it's just going to take time to find out what happens to real case rates.
1: We're not monitoring the way we should be, but we're monitoring enough that if we were seeing huge upticks in the South African or the Brazilian variant, I think we'd know it. So far, we are not, which is somewhat reassuring. The data that Vinita talked about from the New England Journal is reassuring as well. You remember, the FDA would have approved a vaccine if it was over 50 percent efficacious. We got used to 95% and that became the standard. But so maybe it takes this 95% and makes it 60 or 70%. It's still an awfully good vaccine. If we can get enough people vaccinated, we'll still be in decent shape. So I, I don't think there's anything that we've seen that would tell us that we're looking at a looming big surge because of the variant.
0: Is there something else about these vaccines we should know about in terms of how they deal with variants? The
2: regulatory strategy here is not yet ironed out, but the mRNA vaccines have the technological capacity to be reprogrammed rather quickly in response to a new variant, there would be the possibility of spinning up a different mRNA sequence that would elicit immunity to a new variant of the future.
1: And although the FDA hasn't been absolutely explicit about its regulatory path, they've been explicit enough to make clear that they're not going to require another trial of 30,000 people. They will accept surrogate markers and some safety testing to be sure it's okay. So it's not unreasonable to believe that if these variants become major players in the United States, let's say in the late summer, early fall, that we'll be taking a third Pfizer-Moderna shot that is rejiggered against them by October, November.
0: So those are some of the top of mind questions about the rollout, how we're doing, how far along we are to herd immunity. What about the new strains and such? Now, what about distribution? So this vaccine rollout has centered around the two-shot regimen with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and now Johnson & Johnson has more recently been approved as a one-shot vaccine. Is two-shots going to continue to be the model? In some cases, that second dose has been delayed due to supply issues. So where do we stand with the current two-shot model? There is an active
1: debate about whether our strategy should be delaying the second dose. That is precisely what they're doing in the UK. They're doing it in a couple of provinces in Canada. I argued in early January that we should do that, that the evidence of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines hit that 95% number 10 days after dose number two. But if you look at the curves in the trials and you look at the real life experience in a country like Israel, It shows that the vaccines are awfully effective after the first dose. You'll sometimes hear that they were 50% effective after the first dose. I think that's a misleading number because that includes the first couple of weeks while the vaccine is kicking in. That's not the relevant question. The relevant question is 10 seconds before you got your second dose, how protected were you from your first dose? And the answer to that is probably in the 80 to 90% range. And if you do the math and do the modeling, it's a no-brainer. There's just no question that you'd be better off getting more people their first doses, delaying the second dose for what might be a month or two until the doses are more plentiful, and then peeling back and giving everybody their second
0: dose. So why hasn't this happened if there's a case to be made that delaying the second dose could actually be better from a public health perspective?
1: When I've spoken to some of the federal officials on this, What they don't want to do is message uncertainty. They really worry about the mask thing where we said, you don't need to, now you need to, and everybody got confused and I don't know who to believe. They think that after months and months of, you need that second dose three or four weeks out, if they all of a sudden say to people, well, actually you don't, go ahead and you can wait another month or two and it's okay. Some people are gonna say, I don't know who to believe. Some people are not gonna come back for their second dose. Understandable why people would be risk averse about that kind of a shift. You know, a month ago, Rollout was poor, way insufficient supply. At this point, the number of doses are getting out there so fast that I think you could make a rational argument that it's almost too late, that we're getting close to getting all the high-risk people vaccinated, particularly older people.
0: Okay, so how about the demand side? There's been lots of headlines about people who are refusing or reluctant to take the vaccine. People who are generally anti-vaccination certainly are, are part of that group. Which of these categories do you think is most concerning as the rollout continues?
2: This is a complex question, and there are lots of reasons when you start looking at why are people declining the vaccine. The number one tends to be safety. In most polls, people cite concern with whether the vaccines are safe to take. And so I think while it's easy to kind of bucket all of that as an anti-vax fringe, the reality is that it's more complicated than that. I think we're probably underestimating the number of patients who have no vaccine hesitancy, but who, for a variety of reasons, they can't take off work to go do the appointment, which is going to take three hours. They can't find childcare to manage that process. These are reasons that are going to be way more prevalent than sort of
1: hardcore anti-vax sentiments. The data that I've seen says that the number of truly hardcore anti-vaxxers, they won't take a vaccine for anything, is on the order of 10 or 15 percent. And it's not 25, 30, 40 percent. Sort of like politics, there is that persuadable group, and it's a large group. And my guess is they will be persuaded over time as the vaccine continues to be more efficacious, more available. The side effects profile is not all that bad, although not nothing. Sometimes hesitancy is okay. I mean, if you were a High risk person in a nursing home, I think it's awfully dangerous to wait. But if you're a 40 or 50 year old person, let's say in San Francisco, where the prevalence right now is very, very low, you know, if you say, I really want to wait a few more weeks or a month or two to kind of sort this out, I mean, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't encourage my family to do it. But it's not the end of the world as long as you're being careful during this time. I think there are
2: people who will increasingly fall into the category of the pandemic's over. Maybe I don't need this anymore because COVID's gone and look at case rates in my zip code, why do I need to get vaccinated? And so that's a whole nother wave I think that's coming of people who kind of have put COVID into the back of their mind and we're not necessarily surfacing enough data for them about variants and spread and where there's still transmissibility and where there's not and how a new surge could still happen if people aren't vaccinated. So there's anti-vaxxers, There's people who don't think COVID is an acute concern anymore. And then there are people with complex comorbidities who have medical questions. And all three, I think, deserve really clear, crisp communication.
0: So that can obviously get really complicated when you're talking about complex medical issues.
2: I work in a cancer survivorship clinic at Stanford. I have seen in just the last few weeks, two patients as examples who had bone marrow transplants. One has graft versus host disease is on immunosuppression. In some parts of the country and in some parts of the world, doctors are sort of operating with a lot of incomplete data, right? Like, well, maybe you should hold your immunosuppression for a couple of weeks around the time of your vaccine to make sure that you can have a good immune response to the vaccine and optimize for efficacy well, maybe that's not safe enough because your graft versus host disease flared two months ago. Or maybe you're so immunosuppressed that maybe there's not gonna be enough of a reason to do the vaccine and to undertake all the risks associated with even going to a vaccine site, which people are concerned about having been holed up inside, especially patients like bone marrow transplant survivors. And so I think the sooner we can start educating people about what the recommendations are and why, why we think the recommendation is still to go ahead and get the vaccine, even if we don't know exactly how to quantify the efficacy in your patient population, I think will be important.
0: So big picture, what should we be doing better to communicate with people?
2: I wish we had had so much more in the way of distribution technology that just looks so different than what has happened over the past few months. I mean, we should be texting people just like you got texted by 18 political campaigns in November. Nobody's texted me yet about a vaccine. Nobody's told my patients when it's available. Health systems aren't telling their own patients, I think, as much as they could exactly which tier they fall into because they're pointing them to the tiering, right? But at the end of the day, we know patients who struggle to figure out exactly when they're eligible and where to go and how to make the appointment. Health systems know everything about their patients that they need to know to decide what tier they're in. And shouldn't those patients be getting a message that says, starting today, you're eligible. Here's where you go to schedule the appointment. And that's actually not the norm. I do think we've very solidly transitioned away from that first wave which was pretty restricted to hospitals, health systems, healthcare workers, into a much, much broader distribution strategy that includes pharmacies and health clinics and stadiums and local governments and public health departments really pulling out all the stops on vaccine administration speed. A lot of public health education has gone into that. Polls all show that the number of Americans who now say they want a vaccine has been trending upwards over the last few months. We're certainly turning a corner and there's probably still room for further improvement.
0: Let's try to separate what's hype and what's real here. So this vaccine rollout, trying to get the entire country on board is really such a massive public health undertaking. How ready for it were we? What were the major challenges
1: I can tell you, you know, working at a place that had to administer vaccines at UCSF took a little while to kind of just figure out the logistics. It's non-trivial. And particularly when it was Pfizer and you had to deal with the, the cold requirement. But even with Moderna, just the amount of planning to get the logistics right. It wasn't just finding the people to do the vaccinations and give the shots. It was the pharmacists, it was the herders and the, the, the Sherpas to check people in. It was the reservation systems. And did you use one that you already had or did you have to build one or buy one? There were a lot of vaccination sites that were nine to five Monday through Friday, which is fine if you're talking flu vaccine and not fine when you're talking about a disease that's killed half a million people in the United States. So I think it just took a little while for the seriousness to sink in and the complexity to sink in. And once it did, it was, okay. you know, we need football stadiums. And it was in the face of a tremendous amount of uncertainty. There was very little transparency about the supply and when it was going to come, how it was going to come. So part of this was just a harder problem than we expected.
0: Okay, so the vaccine distribution effort is in the headlines every day. Everyone's paying attention to the efficacy of the vaccine, the percentage of people vaccinated. What is the thing people aren't talking about that is going to become a big topic in your view?
1: I think the most interesting question of all will be the matter of vaccine or immunity passports. It's not going to rise in March or probably not April, but come May, when the vaccines are plentiful, easily available for everyone, there are signs up in every Walgreens and CVS that says, come on in, you can get your shot. And restaurants or workplaces or stadiums or theaters are trying to figure out whether to open. And so the matter of whether or not organizations use vaccine or immunity passports and say, you can come in, but you have to demonstrate immunity. have to figure out the logistics and the technology of that. And how do you fraud proof that? Is it ethical? Is it legal? There are a hundred issues that flow from that. But I think that's going to be the most interesting issue that we will face come May or June. I just interviewed one of the leading epidemiologists in Israel. And now the government is enforcing a vaccine passport system called the Green Pass and everybody will have the barcode and you're gonna have to show it going into the shopping center. We think masks were controversial. That'll be quite a wild ride in the United States if that becomes a thing.
0: How would something like a vaccine passport affect people's views about getting the vaccine if they're reluctant to do it?
2: I hope that that will play in our favor here in terms of becoming an active real-time incentive for an anti-vaxxer, for example, to reconsider their choice. Because unlike a purely preventive vaccine, where there isn't a pandemic that's still ongoing, the choice of whether or not to have a vaccine, it feels like it's more of a private choice. Now it's like, well, guess what? Your child's school is simply not going to permit it because there is still COVID in the community right now. This is a new norm that's happening because we're dealing with an active, ongoing pandemic. And so I think the vaccine passport concept, components of that actually stand a chance to directly persuade in a way that we couldn't have done with other inactive pandemics.
0: So Bob, Venita, we ask people here on 16 Minutes to bottom line it for us as a way to help us focus on what to pay attention to or to not pay attention to. Can you tell us what to expect coming up? The macro
2: picture on distribution is so much better, and yet there's still so many opportunities that we can all see glaringly for further improvement in the distribution campaign. And so I hope that we kind of continue to make progress on that rapidly over the next even just weeks. And and I think we will.
1: In the last several weeks, I've spoken to lots of epidemiologists and virologists and vaccinologists. I don't hear anyone anymore saying our future will be a COVID-free world where this thing goes away on October 27th and we never hear of it again. I think the two curveballs here are the variants and the fact that we're not going to reach full vaccination in the world, nowhere close to it. As long as there's travel, there will be virus coming in and out of our community. And the question will be, have we truly reached herd immunity? It's not really like a magic number where you reach it and there is zero possible chance you can get infected. Most people believe we have another small surge in our future, and maybe two, one might be in the next month or two as the variants sort of get slightly ahead of the vaccination. I think people will probably ditch their mass, maybe prematurely. But then I think the question will come next fall and winter when we have to see what the virus has mutated into, whether we all need a third shot of an mRNA vaccine or a second shot of a and j vaccine, whether it's the same shot, whether it's a rejiggered shot. There's clearly a light at the end of the tunnel. And exactly how far away it is and whether we are can have a few bumps along the way, hard to know. But it feels very different now than it felt in January. I think the vaccines are remarkably effective, remarkably safe. So I'm very optimistic. I'm feeling much better than I have any time in the last year.
0: Bob and Vanita, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you.